You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. The only people for me are the mad ones. The world is filled with the boring and the barely conscious. Misery loves company. But we don't have to live this way. Jessica and I are here to talk to those the system rejects, to radicals and thought criminals. The ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but push the boundaries of acceptable discourse. Those who stare reality in the face and dare it to be different. History isn't made by the timid, and fun is not had by the perpetually afraid. We are the mad ones. So let's get to it. Welcome to the Mad Ones. I'm your, I don't know if you can tell, but my children have destroyed my glasses and I've definitely glued them together and it's not going to drive me crazy all night, host Cam Harless. And with me as always is your humble nurse who takes care of her poor husband anytime he trips over the dog hostess, Miss Jessica Green. <laughs> That's I true. I am so very humble. <laughs> I, I am so dumb though. Because I forgot to put us in before that video went out. So there's just this little pause of That's nothingness. Okay. And, you know, I'm I'm tired. I, yeah. I've had a lot going on. My glasses are broken. You can't fault me for this. Um, we but both, we, just to be fair to us, everybody, we both quit smoking. So this is their, our quit smoking episode. <laughs> and our guest is, has smoked, is still a smoker. So he's going to torture us the whole time with it. I did. And I encourage buy, that. I did buy more nicotine because <gasps> I, I was so mean. I was the betrayal. So mean. I was so mean to my wife, Jessica. Oh, have... no, you can't be mean to your wife. She's so nice. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, <laughs> oh, joining shit. us tonight is one of the boyos. You may know him from Twitter as a chaos bringing laser eyed dog. He's a mad scientist in the mountains and a former worker in psych wards, the man no once known as Cholera Fan, Mr. Chris Amadon. How you doing? How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I asked you to come on is because not that long ago in our Twitter group chat, I was we were talking about something and you had said something about how uh, mental illness was essentially a myth and that you could destroy psychiatry. And I went, okay, so I've never heard someone say that who wasn't a Scientologist. And so I was, this piqued my interest because, you know, usually it's the crazy people. Let me just say, before we get into that and your history and what you do or what you've done or what you did, I don't know. Um, one time I went and visited my brother in uh, Los Angeles. And he, he comes to me and he says, hey, do you want to go to the death museum? And I was like, well, of course I want to go to the death museum. That's a stupid question. I want to go. Um, but what he didn't tell me was that it wasn't actually a death museum. It was a museum called Psychiatry, an Industry of Death, and it's a Scientologist front. And so it's an entire museum, and you walk through and you see these different little exhibits and videos that talk about how, how psychiatry is bad and how psychiatry is what led to 9-11 and Hitler and all of this. And I was just like, wow, this is nuts, <laughs> and everyone needs to check this out. But that was like my firsthand Scientologist anti-psychiatry situation. But you actually worked in a psych ward, and so – when you said this and you, you have this firsthand knowledge and this firsthand um, experience, 
with psych wards. I want to hear about that. What what did you do in a was it a psych ward? Am I saying is that is that correct or was yeah. it just a com- okay? Yeah, it was in a crisis stabilization unit in Tampa. It was an inner city uh, nonprofit, and then uh, later on, I was in a private facility. It was still a Baker Act facility. Baker Act just one year brought in by the police involuntarily. Um, okay. And in Orlando, I worked there too, but it was a private institution. But we still had, you know, a lot of uh, you had to take in the, the Baker Act people or whatever. So, yeah, uh, for about a decade, decade and a half. I don't remember exactly. Probably a decade, a little over a decade. Uh, I worked in them as like lower level, and then I went to school. I got my degree, and then I worked a little higher level, um, and then I eventually had to leave because I couldn't really handle it. Uh, I couldn't. I, I couldn't be a part of it anymore. So. What is your what was your degree in? Psychology. Psychology. Okay. So, yeah, having... I wanted to be a psychologist back then, but um, after working further, I uh, abandoned that. Okay. Just real quick, when you said that they said mm-hmm. that psychiatry is the res- is responsible for nine eleven. It reminded me of that Twitter account, every word did 9-11. So it'd be like women did 9-11, yep. school buses did 9-11. And so in this case, it's psychiatry did 9-11. So. There that, is actually, the 9-11 is preposterous, but they're actually, I happen to have this book right here because I was like, oh, you know, we're talking about later. Um, I have not read this book yet. Uh, oh, we can't even see it because of the light. There you go. Psychiatrist, the men behind Hitler. So this is a whole thing written by German doctors <laughs> back in the 90s who postulated that really, and there was actually, there was a lot to do with um, psychiatry and Hitler. I mean, even the American eugenics movement here was really revolved around psychiatry and they kind of modeled their whole system after that. But, but so we need, it's preposterous. So we need a Twitter account that says every word created Hitler. So exactly. it can be <laughs> Scientology created Hitler, psychiatry created Hitler. Yeah. So I don't know, you, get on that guys. When you came to the conclusion, as you said in our message when I was like, okay, I want to talk about this, which, which is that mental health, mental illness is a myth, was it from experience in your time in the psych ward or was it like studying the history of psychiatry? What was it that kind of... It kinda... was both. It was both okay. plus my own struggle. I, like I have, I know I'm coming out of podcast and I'm going, uh, oh, there's, it's a myth that mental illness, whatever, but I'm, I am severely depressive. I've been dealing with my whole life since I was a little kid. And um, I can explain more later why I think that I'm still depressive. And I think it was created by the medications that were designed to treat me. But um, mm. it's both from my experience in the mental health field. I've been on 30 plus medications that didn't do anything for me. Um, I, and then most people that, go into psych are crazy themselves, most people. I mean, everybody I've ever met. Um, but I mean, most people are a little crazy in general, but um, I don't know, with psychics, because uh, a lot of people really want to help themselves, and they and they do, a lot of them. Um, but then there's a lot of uh, people like me who go in there looking for an answer, and then uh, you realize that the whole system is really not uh, going to help you at all. Okay. Um, that is, I will say I have to agree with you on the kind of idea that a lot of people who go into psych- psychiatry or psychology are typically damaged people because I've yet to meet someone who is in that field or is chasing after that field who is not 
just a mess, just like an absolute mess. Yeah, but human I, being. I kind of think that's how it should be, though. Also, like you don't yeah. want some like you know those weird people. I know no none of them are here, but the weird people who everything's always been okay and they just dance through life and there's no problem. Oh, like, yeah. You don't want that person telling you how to run. You're like you don't even. Oh, get out of here. You know what I mean? That's, you know, that makes sense. Like, well, those aren't we, real people. <laughs> no, no, yeah, their personalities aren't real for sure. Yeah, exactly. Well, you ha hear a lot today about people saying, go to therapy, go to therapy, go to therapy, but you never hear about the after effects or people who had bad experience with therapists and therapy. So that's something I'm actually kind of interested in talking about because more often than not, I hear about people having bad experiences with therapists. Well, and, yeah, and let well, me just insert in there the fact that the people that I've known very closely who have told me that I need to go to therapy are like they're, somehow they have become worse as in like they're not people that I want to speak to anymore hmm. like they've they there's this so I won't give any specific examples because I don't want to put anyone on blast but I've had a couple of friends who have told me hey you should check out therapy therapy is good for everyone but when they came out of therapy they became so mindless and compliant like they, mm -hmm. they, they, they went through this therapeutic cycle. They have their person they talk to every week. They have the drugs that this person gives them. And then when you talk to them, there's almost no one behind, no one in the house anymore. It's just empty windows. Mm. The lights like, are on, well, but nobody's in there. Yeah. I don't have a problem with therapy per se, although I think that there's a lot of bad therapists out there. And I think that... Um, like uh, Robin Dawes wrote a book, House of Cards, that kind of takes down the whole talk therapy efficacy. Uh, it's not as efficacious as we'd like, but um, there's a few talk therapies that I like, um, acceptance and commitment therapy and REBT, and a few of them that are really useful tools that people can use to get better. And it's not really about therapy per se. Most psychiatrists have no idea about any kind of therapy or about how the human mind works or anything. They just know how much oh. Okay, so here's something maybe neurology. maybe you can clarify for me because I associate mm -hmm. when you say psychiatry and therapy, I lump them in together. Like, what's the no. difference? Well, psychiatrists typically, uh, when I was on the unit, okay, the uh, the psychiatrist sees new patients for five to fifteen minutes, and they go through their history, they ask them a couple questions, and then they're like, "Here's your diagnosis. Here's the drug that you're going to take." Uh, right, right. A therapist, a therapist is someone who you kind of build a rapport with, and over time they can help you teach you skills on how to uh, lessen your symptoms or um, you know reach further than you would have reached because you don't know how to. A lot of people just weren't really, even if you are raised by great parents, uh, they might not have taught you the uh, the skills you really need to, to succeed in life. And, and okay. not just about uh, balancing your budget or whatever, but like about uh, mindfulness and like about emotions and like how to interact with people and things like that. And so therapists, they do a lot of good work um, doing that. There, there is a lot of bad therapists out there, but there's some amazing ones out there. So, so it's not really psychologists um, or therapists that I have a problem with. It's, it's more psychiatry as a discipline it, it, there's no real reason for it to exist. Okay, so I definitely want to get into that. I, what I'm going to say, though, is just the people that are telling me that they should go to therapy, 
Um, it's also been paired with psychiatry and with diagnosis. I just want to go on the record. Cam should right. definitely go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm perfect. You shut your mouth. So, they so. Help with that. <laughs> so, so talk to me. How about, awful would it be to be perfect? Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty great. I mean, it just seems I, like a I, lot of pressure. Well, the, here's the trick. When you feel like you're going to be sad, just choose to be awesome and set instead. And it's oh, all good from there. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It's easy. Wait, are you a therapist? Are you a therapist? <laughs> you just I've heard this before. <laughs> but look, look, so you said that um, part of it. So I want to get some of the fun stuff out of the way because, you know, when you, someone says they worked in a psych ward, I kind of want to know some of the weird stories or some of the weird things that they've experienced. Are there any that you would feel comfortable sharing or are there any that are just like, wow, this was really screwed up and you know, something like that. Was there anything that really um, left with you when you went home? I don't know. Regale us. Not really. It's just, it's just a constant steady stream of the same sad people and the same sad lives. And, and I worked mm. in a, um, I worked in a, a unit with just kids and adolescents for a long time. And that was, I could not do that for very long because man, that is depressing, but it's really just, I mean, one day you're, I broke, I, I don't remember if it was broke. I think I sprained my wrist or whatever, trying to subdue someone that was attacking someone else. You know, there's constant threats of violence or violence or whatever, but for the most part, it's just sad people and they um, are in the worst time of their lives and they come into this place where the place is getting paid money to uh, just drug them up and send them back out there. But there's not really a lot of fun stories. It's, it's just a lot of sad. I mean, I've held like, you know, 400 pound like ghetto black dudes, like, like schizophrenic and they're just sitting there and I'm holding them and they're sobbing and uh, you know it's just hmm. it's that's that's what it's like you know it's not like um you know I don't know you know it's not there was one guy who used to write write letters to the president in like crayon all the time but then he got sent to like the state psych facility um and that guy was kind of funny but also he was like a really uh bad like uh Sex pervert, whatever. You know, he uh, had a lot of sex crimes and stuff. So he was a psychopath for sure. That was the that was the most interesting client that we had. But for the most part, it's not a. Sometimes they can be funny. Oh. Um, there's a lot of a lot of funny funny moments day to day. But in general, it's just uh, you're really just helping out like miserable people that it's just, it's, they have really sad lives. Um, but I, I did some good there, and I think I helped some people there here and there. The way you describe um, the psych ward reminded me very much, almost to the T, of working in a nursing home. The way you're saying, like, that it's like, you know, they're pretty much the worst time of their lives and they're being held by people who are being paid to drug them up. And, you know, yeah, there's some, there are some amusing moments, but at the same time, it's mostly just sad. And yeah, that mirrors my experience of the nursing home almost exactly. Yeah, of course. I mean, anytime where you have somebody who they, uh, it's the the parallel there is they both lost like, um, you know, agency in their lives and somebody's taking it away from them and they're trying to get back however they can. But in the end of life, I mean, that's even harder because a lot of them don't have the hope that they're ever going to get it back. Yeah, yeah. 
There was, um, but there's definitely some like amusing moments still and almost in a way of like, this is so sad that you kind of have to find something amusing in it because otherwise you'll succumb to the sadness yourself. Yeah. And course. like, yeah, you always yeah. do. Yeah. Always do. And, and you find, yeah, there's lots of joy there too. You know, there's a lot of people overcoming um, a lot of obstacles that they've had and, you know, finding breakthroughs. And, you know, I, I used to host a lot of, uh, on the ward, like you, you host the, the group meetings and everything like that. There's a lot of moments where people really realize something about themselves that they had never realized. And that's, you know, those are the moments that kind of get you through all the horrible mismanagement yeah. of the rest of the day. Yeah. Do you think that when you saw these people having those breakthrough moments, did any of those cause any breakthrough moments for you? Oh, definitely. Or, I mean, I've definitely, my biggest thing that I took out of the whole thing is uh, I'm a lot easier on other people when they're difficult or um, hard to understand their actions. You know, uh, it's really, it's kind of everybody's crazy or no one's crazy. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Like if, if certain people keep acting a certain way again and again, it's not necessarily because they're an asshole. It might be because their dad was an asshole or because, you know, they have, they've had a rough life. You know, it's not really, uh, it's, I can't really blame a lot of people for a lot of things. I mean, we each choose to do specific behaviors, but I don't know. A lot of people don't. I, I, I'm not really sure what any of us do. So, so well, let me ask you about the history of psychiatry, because mm -hmm. that's something that when it's not presented very often. And I do feel like the most history that I ever got came from the Scientologists, which I feel like these are Scientologists. I can't trust them because, you know, they're selling something. Like it's, 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 it's very clear that they're selling something, but that's why I wanted to talk to you. Cause you're not, you're not selling anything. And so if you could tell us some of the history that really stuck out to you, some of the stuff that you saw and kind of, like I said, like you said earlier, goes into COVID and, and how they're, I mean, let's be real. They're trying to break people. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. if you could go into some of, the bigger points of that i i would love to yeah. hear what you've learned well first of all the scientology you can be right about certain things and still everything else absolutely wrong. I, don't, I don't know if they're wrong we might i mean i don't know if, i have no i've never really measured my feet and so i'm not sure but um the <laughs> uh, just offhand i feel like it? they're wrong <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i'm gonna so, guess i'm gonna so guess. are you but are, thomas thomas Saz, who i really respect he wrote the myth of mental illness in the early 70s maybe but he he was the first one who was like like what are we doing with mental illness and the, the myth of mental illness and he actually joined up with the scientologists and they formed a i can't remember i want to say c4ss but i know that center for stateless society i can't remember what it is but it's like a four-letter acronym and they they formed a thing and later he kind of backed off because everybody as soon as he joined up with them everybody started discrediting him yeah but he was a famous uh, psychiatrist who wrote a bunch of books on any, anybody who's in the liberty movement um, needs to read uh, Thomas Dawson's uh, Law of Liberty and Psychiatry, which is a really important book, um, as well as Robin Dawes' House of Cards, which I mentioned earlier. But um, 
Yeah, so I don't know. They can be right about something. You know, there's a lot of people who, you know, uh, I'm sure uh, Jim Jones was probably right about a couple of things here and there too. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of cults that have, uh, you know, a lot of bad ideas, and then like, hey, there's a good idea somewhere in there. So I like to listen to everybody and see what happens. I'm sure someone will clip just that. Oh, yeah, part of you that. saying, I'm sure Jim, Jim Jones, Jones was right about a few ideas. things. I mean, <laughs> what's wrong um, about everything? But just, just offhand, I did recently book someone to come on in September to talk about Jim Jones. So I've, oh, I've done a lot of reading on Jim Jones and, uh, he is one of those who really deeply looks into, uh, secret societies, cults, stuff like that. And so in September, we're actually going to do a deep, more or less deep dive on Jim Jones. And I'm, nice. I'm excited about that because he was like the ultimate SJW and most yep. people don't see oh, him that shit. way. Martyr made had a great podcast series recently. I think it was martyr made about Jim Jones. And it was really good. I think uh, you should check that out for sure. But um, anyway, the history of psychiatry, the first, uh, the first one I can remember, I think it was developed in Russia, but then it spread to UK and America, but in around the, 1800, 1805, somewhere around there, they had what they called a uh, tranquilizer chair, which was a chair, and they locked you into the chair, and they put a wooden contraption so you couldn't see anything, and they had a hole for you to defecate and urinate in, and then they just left you in the chair. They just left you in the chair. And they that said sounds it was very amazing. Russian. They said, yeah, when they get out, uh, like three months later, they're super tranquil. And I'm like, uh, yeah. So the trials, they did the trials. It worked great. Um, there was another one uh, where they put you in a coffin-sized box with holes drilled in it. Then they submerged that box underwater until the air <gasps> oh my bubbles God. stopped That's coming out. Until the air bubbles stopped coming out. And then they pulled you out and they brought you back to life. You'll notice this is a common theme in these uh, practices. And I'm gonna, I'll, I'll tie them together with psychedelics later on, actually. But um, anyways, so they do that. They basically drown you and then pull you out and then, oh, you're good. And you'll notice a lot, if you go back and you look at a lot of those early writings, uh, not just about those, but about other ones I'm going to talk about, you'll see that they were like, yeah, the patient was very compliant after, very compliant. It's a lot of it's about compliance, especially when you're an inpatient or back then in an asylum, like it's all about compliance. Now, after that, a little while, we had actually some good treatment of the Quakers developed, they saw all the horribleness that was going around the treatment of the mentally ill. Um, and they developed these moral asylums where they were out in the country and they were beautiful. It's like what you would want an asylum to be basically. Like they didn't have any medical, it wasn't about medicine or anything like that. It was just about these poor people with mental problems will bring them out to the country and we'll engage them in activities and we'll like, you know, they really, it was actually pretty decent and they were having really good outcomes with mentally ill people. And uh, so the medical establishment saw that and they were like, well, I think we can do that too. And then the hell that was the asylum era uh, started. And when the state took over, uh, there was, uh, I think there was only, at its peak, like 150 in the entire United States, 150 uh, facilities, but they would uh, do all kinds of really bad therapies. So there was a, I'm trying to think, uh, I'm skipping a couple, I'll probably go back, but insulin coma therapy, which is they injected you with insulin until you went into a coma. 
And uh, their scientific studies that they did showed 83, 80%, um, 83, I don't know. It's been 10 years since I read the papers. But um, they showed uh, like 80% uh, recovery rate with this, uh, just putting people in comas and bringing them back out. It was on the cover of Time Magazine, I think, at one point about how it was a miracle therapy for mental illness. Um, they also injected people with in malaria-infected blood to give them fevers. And then the fevers, there was actually a scientific basis to this because at the time, it was syphilis was a big problem. And the, uh, the spirochete, I think it is, that causes syphilis um, is susceptible to fever. So that might have actually helped some people. But in general, I think uh, one of the studies, they found out he had a really, I don't remember the, the numbers, but he had really good outcomes. And then later on, they went back and they're like, Oh, that's because half of his patients died, and he just used the ones that didn't die. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> oh, so, no. That was a big thing. Because you'll see, like, all these all these were backed great by great studies. Yeah, great outcomes in all the studies that the doctors that were uh, prescribing them. Um, I don't know. Well, the, the whole but let, let me just, thing. Yep. So well, let me ask, because it's a point of interest for me. Um, this When the state ties itself into these things it's typically horrible across the board and the number one kind of the, the first thing that came to mind when you mentioned that is actually kind of the i don't know how you I, I guess i would describe it as the the birth industrial complex where i don't know if so in in alabama i lived in birmingham and there are several good hot I'm, I'm sure this is in every state but there are several good hospitals that center on birth. And around the time I noticed, around the time that these hospitals came into existence and they started centering a lot of what they did on birth and on having babies, suddenly the propaganda against midwives started coming out. Oh, yeah. uh, propaganda against, or in, 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 you know, of course, you, for a number of years, they had that twilight sleep that they would put pregnant women in which essentially just knocked them out. And they found out later, they did studies and found that during the entire, they may not remember it, but the entire time that these women are asleep and not in pain, they're actually fully cognizant of every moment of pain that they're in. And their brain, you know, does, uh, what's the word? Um, their, their brain deals with all of it, yeah. recognizes it, they freak out. And there was trauma that had come out I haven't done a lot of studies on this, but there was trauma that came out after these births and uh, psychological issues that they didn't attribute to that because the women were asleep. They don't remember it. So obviously yeah. it wasn't an adverse event. So I, I just wanted to throw that in there, but <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Well, yeah, they, I mean, the, the establishment will always fight against that. I mean, we've had a, a moratorium on psychedelic research for you know for four years who knows uh how how far we ahead we'd be just understanding the human brain just based off that the the thing that i was going to circle back to with those are most of the if you go back and everything from electroshock to the water treatment to all that um besides brain damage the thing that they all have in common is like dying and coming back rebirth you know what i mean and that's kind mm -hmm. of I think there might be something in like the human uh, subconscious, like Hegelian, whatever, like uh, that it goes back to that whole um, shamanical uh, birth and, and 
a death and rebirth. You know what I mean? I think that that might be it. I, I don't think that psychedelics are the answer to our healthcare thing. I think they'll just lead us there eventually uh, through research. But we're 40 years behind now because of the state. Well, and that is something that's coming, I, I would say coming of age, but uh, with the, <clears throat> excuse me, with the legalization of marijuana, the, you know, the toes are being dipped in psychedelics, especially in Colorado, because didn't they just last year or something, I mean, it was recent, uh, like completely legalized psychedelics, or at least mushrooms I think it was just, in uh, Boulder. I think it was just in Boulder, but the, um, uh, Rick Doblin and other people at MAPS, the Multidisciplinary uh, Association for Psychedelic Studies, have been doing research on MDMA and LSD and psilocybin for years, especially with end-of-life cancer patients and, and veterans and things like that, PTSD, and they've been having incredible results. But, you know, as I said, everybody got incredible results anytime they want to do something. But, um, I mean, anybody, if anybody wants to do something that makes psychiatry better, donate to MAPS. Okay. Well, you what said is, something. I'm sorry, just real quick for my understanding. What is MAPS? Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They're actually based in Georgia. They um, they they're doing all. They're they're the ones doing all this PTSD and depression and end of life cancer um, therapeutics with um, psilocybin and MDA and things like that. Okay. Amazing things. Like I, I like I said, I don't think that they're going to be the final answer, but I think they're going to lead us. To where we can figure out the final answer. Okay. Well, I mean, you mentioned how there's a lot of death and resurrection, at least mythos, with a lot of the um, the methods that they used to use with these different, you know. But one of the things that I can't help but shake anytime I think about psychiatry is the fact that there was a business that was made out of and even a traveling business of taking a literal ice pick and hammering it into someone's brain mm, and mm, then calling mm. them healed when mm, mm, mm. for all intents yeah, and purposes that, they weren't there yep 100% if you, if you want to know about how great scientific consensus is the consensus was that they should win the Nobel Prize in 1949. I forget his name. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize in 1949 for his amazing cure for mental illness, which was an ice pick. Shove it up your nose and wiggle it around a bit, and the person's perfect. Look at him. It's great. He does whatever we tell him. It's the perfect thing. <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's like giving riddle into a school child. It's great. It's, you know? it's this idea so that as long as you're Prize, doing, as long as you're doing what we tell you, that you're somehow perfect. That makes you great. Exactly. That you you're you're doing what you're told. Like my well, goodness. That's the whole concept of mental. What is mental illness? But a deviation from behavioral norms. That's all mental illness. Yeah. Is. So really, you're just saying uh, this person does this too much, or they do that too much, or they're not acting like everybody else is. You know, I mean, look at Da Vinci and Poe, and like all these people throughout history. Like all of our greatest artists and inventors have all been a little mad. And uh, you know, that's. Uh, I think it was like Cervantes said something like, uh, it's maddest of all to be sane and see life not for what it could be, but for what it is. I'm totally mangling the quote, but it, it, it's just madness is a, I, I don't know if it's a, a discreet thing. I don't know if it's a bad thing. I think harnessing, learning how to harness your own madness is really the, the only real recipe for being a, 
a, a world-changing artist or inventor. And, or yeah, there's certainly that connection between artistry, creativity, and madness that most of the people that we admire for the music they've made or the paintings they've done have been what we consider insane people. I mean, shit, look at Jackson Pollock. He's like the worst person ever, but he made amazing yeah. paintings. <laughs> Literally, you could go through a list of all famous artists in history and there's a lot of them. They're terrible people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but I mean, look at the name of the show. This is something that we embrace, the absurdity, the madness of life. I mean, and that's, if you look at the greatest, the people who shaped the world typically are the ones that people called mad during their lifetime in some, in some way. Uh, and so that's, it, it, it makes sense to me what you're saying because I fully recognize that because I'm, we are in us three happen to be within a subculture online and in life that is considered mad by the the great majority of America. We are considered so mad funny. because we don't we don't pick the the red or the blue team. We may not even pick the dumb yellow team. I know I don't, <laughs> but the like it's it's that's what this show is about is because innovation and um consciousness i feel like happens at the fringes of thought i think that that's where 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 truth is found is because i mean even if you go back in time and you're looking at uh jesus or at i guess my best example but jesus was called a madman that was a big thing for him and then you you look at I can't, I mean, Picasso was a madman. Van Gogh was a madman. You have all of these different people who we still remember, but we don't typically remember the ones who weren't mad, who weren't mm -hmm. doing yeah. something so new that it was considered crazy. I mean, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson of all, I mean, I, I think that the there was some sinisterness within the founding fathers. But what he was proposing was considered mad at that point. He wrote a letter to a king and said, fuck off, essentially. That's madness. Kind of mad, yeah. If you're not a little mad and you're saying anything that goes against the current established system of thought, then you will be assigned that label. Um, mm -hmm. Like Ignaz Semmelweis, he, he's like, uh, well, I'm an obstetrician. And I noticed that we always like dissect cadavers. What if we washed our hands in between dissecting cadavers and delivering babies? And everybody's like, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? And he died in an insane asylum. He left, he got yeah. forced out of the industry, died in an insane asylum. It's uh, like, what if, what if the earth isn't the center of the universe? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's all, if, if you're not mad, uh, then you'll be declared mad if you're trying to change the establishment. Yeah. Yeah. Always. It seems to me that insane, insane asylums are more or less where they put people that are inconvenient to the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Because they're, I mean, they, you see this going around online all the time about all of the things that could get a woman thrown into an insane asylum in the 1800s. And one of those oh, yeah. things was reading too much. If oh, she yeah. reads too much, kind of she's insane. 
Right. It's, it's not right for a woman to read. Right? I do Unless agree. I do. I do agree with that stuff. But, uh, then she'll no, want to no, vote. And... But they did hysterectomies, <laughs> like hysteria, hysterectomies. Mm-hmm, it was all mm-hmm. all the women's craziness was all based in the organs. They they um there was one account of a woman who was a nymphomaniac, labeled a nymphomaniac, who's probably like the average suburban college girl, whatever now. But um and so they. It gave her a clitoridectomy and oh, then it, it, it got even worse because she couldn't uh, achieve what she was trying to achieve it was it, it got worse like, they, but they did that yeah they did that in america like uh, yeah. well, if you cut up your sex organs you're not going to come anymore and this is a valuable <laughs> lesson for everybody oh, who wants to cut up their sex organs we all don't do it that we not worth it well, well and, they're and, just a trend in our society right now that says, so, you know, go ahead. I was just going to say there is <laughs> there are a lot of women right now that are very thankful for psychiatry purely for the fact that hysteria, which is based off of hyster, which is woman, which is mm-hmm. is they that they in, invented vibrators because they thought these these pervert ass doctors thought hey you know if i give this woman an orgasm she'll calm the fuck down well no, i've actually i have never actually i've, I've where's the lie i've read a lot about the hysterectomies and stuff like that but i haven't i don't remember ever reading anything clinical that was advising those i think those might have just been advertisements like you're four to five dentists i think that might have just i don't know i i could be totally wrong but I don't know if they ever really used them much in therapy to the extent that they were like putting people in comas and doing all that. But I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe they maybe they did. They must have. Well, okay, so there was a you used to be able to go to your general practitioner and get a treatment, <laughs> which was him, you know, not using him I don't know exactly how they did it, but basically the doctor mm-hmm. would give you an orgasm. And it yeah. was wildly popular, go figure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm because, sure that you know, these... gyneco- gynecology as a profession was probably really on the up and up. Um, sure. Right. I mean, fellas, just, you know, if your wife is, you know, cr- crazy, just hit it right. She'll be fine. Like, do you, in med school, do you want to be a proctologist or do you want to do this? And they're like, oh, I'm going to go to gynecology. I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, so, one yeah, thing, I mean, one... yeah. Quickly, I just wanted to say one comment because Whip asked, um, "Have I been saying that dude's name wrong the whole time? Pronunciation like cough." Van Gogh. Te- technically, <laughs> so I started saying it like that purely because there was a cute girl on our show last week who was English, and they say it like that, and my brain <laughs> just automatically went there. That just happens. He, he wanted to impress like, the death. I say it like death girl. I say it like Rango. I just say it's Vango. It's Vango. Like but wasn't he French? So it's probably more like some soft. It's with French people. And that's what I'm saying. Vango. So I, I read a story about him that he had some kind of mental illness, since that's Ooh. where the topic that's we're funny. on, that um, caused him to um, not only see the color yellow very intensely, but to experience the color yellow very intensely. And that informed a lot of the way that he painted. And he also, yeah, he also like cut parts of himself off and mailed them to his girlfriend. But he hasn't done that. But we have Starry Night, so thanks. Well, no, no, there is. There's been a lot of studies. There's actually a 
a whole subject of depressive realism where um, sometimes people who are depressed see colors in a more accurate manner than others do. And they, especially the color blue and probably the color yellow at the opposite end of the spectrum. There's been a lot of studies that show that people with depression see colors differently than everyone else. Does, you know? really what would you say to the theory that people with depression actually have a more realistic view of the world? And because their view of the world is much more realistic, it makes them depressed. And they're not able to like, I don't know, like deal with it in the way that normal brains do. And I put normal in quotations in case anyone's listening to just the audio. Um, no, it's, a, it's an interesting question because uh, with depression, it can be, I do think that um, like, Poe was really into that. Like he said, his depression really was what made him understand people better. And I think there is some. I think with depression, you tend to be outside. You tend to be outside, and you're outside looking at society more because you withdraw and, and all that. But um, I don't know if there's there's so many people with so many different kinds of depressive symptoms that it's it's hard to generalize. But I do think that. Often mental illness in general, you end up looking at society from the outside, so it's easier for you to analyze and, and really uh, understand what's going on when a lot of people who, mm -hmm. are, who are just, most people are just going along with whatever everybody's doing because they, they don't have to stop and ruminate for eight hours a day on like why uh, sure. everything, you know, why everything's miserable. So it, it happens. Actually, Horatius, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but Horatius, um, there is a documentary also called Happy People, which is about um, people who live in like the Siberian steppes and they spend their entire lives in eking out survival in these really difficult circumstances. And they're some of the happiest people you'll meet on earth because they don't have time to be depressed. Like, exactly. A lot of you it have is to just fish. a function of, exactly. A lot of it is just a function of, of, of our society and we don't have to experience, you have to let your kids reach obstacles that are too hard for them to overcome and fail and get hurt and do all these things because mm. that's what makes you who you are uh it's like that old yeah. uh, alexis carell who actually is kind of one of the villains in the psychiatry thing but he was a psychiatrist in uh in france and he said uh man cannot remake himself without suffering because he is both the marble and the sculptor and that's the whole thing to, to create an identity that's how we create our identities that's how we form them is, is by um, overcoming uh, pain and obstacles and doing things we never thought possible and failing a bunch of times and then finally getting it. That's like, and I think that that's the major problem today with both both the whole, like, I think there are people that are transgendered or whatever, but I think a lot of it is just people don't have an identity. They're not allowed to create yes. a discrete identity when they're kids. And so they're, Yes. They get their, I, they let other people form an identity. So you can become a, I'm a Democrat now or I'm a Republican or whatever. Like you just have these groups where I'm furry, you know, I, you don't have an identity of your own. So you, you just take an externally manufactured identity and, and make that who you are. I couldn't agree with you more. That is something that I've said for a number of years that especially, you know, my generation and a little bit before, but mostly my generation and after we, have to deal with a profound lack of identity like i i there's this one girl i knew and i'm not saying that um he's not transgender now but the deal with this one particular person 
was that um, he she was always going to the next thing when she became less special. Mm. So there was mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. supreme need for validation. There was a need for being different. There was a need for having these things. And so it was, and you can see all of the different steps as this goes up. And that uh, among a bunch of other things throughout culture, throughout history that I've noticed is this desire to have identity. And one of the things that I was going to mention without even you mentioning that um, is something that I'm learning, which is I need to let my children be bored. Yes. Because really important. boredom is so important because I learned how to be funny out of being bored. I learned how to write out of being bored. I learned how I never learned how to draw, but on computers, I learned how to design out of being bored. And so there is this very important aspect of life, which is boredom where we find ourselves, where we find what we're good at, where we start to hone our skills and become something more than just the norm. And so I just wanted to throw that in there. Boredom is good. Let your children be fucking bored. Take away the tablets and stupid video games. I like video games. Take them away. Let them do what they need to do to become who they are. Also, I think that's why people don't read anymore, because you have something to constantly occupy your mind. You're not going to sit down and read a book. Not when you've got, you know, a million games to play and things to watch and whatever. And, you know, yeah, I get that you can, you know, obtain knowledge through other means, but there's just nothing quite like reading that, um, you know, it's it's kind of unfortunate, I think, that we're losing the written word as a result of that. Well, and I, I don't think that it's an accident that I've noticed that in millennials and beyond. Because millennials, like people, all of a sudden people are trying to say that Gen X is, oh, we had one step, one foot in analog. We had one foot in digital, sort of, but... Millennials were really the people who had the normal childhood and within that same childhood had the digital world mm-hmm. thrust upon them. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, this that is what defines a millennial. And Gen Z has never had that. Gen Alpha, the kids that I'm raising, are never going to live without these, these silly things, This the bread and the circus. They're not going to live without... The, Constant um, stimulation. What's the name of the stuff in Brave New World? The drug that they give people. Soma. To, yeah, they're not, they're gonna, they're never going to live without soma. No. And well, another thing with that, uh, with the uh, growing up in that thing, and it ties into the identity thing is, you know, we used to have like our grandparents' generation, like there was like two radio stations, and they listened to a little Orphan Annie or whatever. They listened to Beatles, whatever, right? And they and then. A bat just flew in front of my okay. Um, and then they had, um, you know, and then there was the five channels that we all had growing up or whatever. And then we had cable TV. And now we have the internet. And, like, each thing, like, when we were kids, like, oh, those, those are pop kids and those are hip-hop kids and those are punk kids. And now they're like, that's post-pop electro-funk kids. And that's, you know what I mean? There's, like, a million different things. We just started out with these, these, yeah. these cultural so groups. Much now we have no culture because there's a thousand – a million different cultures, you know, which is okay. I think that we got to get there, but we're in a transitionary period. And it's like, it's maddening. For but also to like wrap their heads around TV, 
TV used to turn off at a certain hour. I don't know what it was. Midnight. Let's just call it midnight. It turned off, you know, and our, our sleep cycles are so messed up now because we are constantly bombarded by screens, by blue light. There's electric light. So light's always on around us. And we never have that like darkness to light cycle again. And it's, I think that it's really screwing up our, not only our health, but like our mental aspects. Cause we don't have night anymore. Not, not really. That when TV was episodic and weekly and you had to either watch it or miss or it. Wait. And then eventually VCR record it, watch it later and then talk to your friends. I can't tell you how many or, times or when, or you all meet together every week and do it. So it's a communal right. thing. So there's like yeah. a, a social aspect to it. You're not right, just sitting so, alone binging reality TV on Netflix <laughs> and you're, uh, till four in the morning. You know? Right. Yeah. Well, and that, that, that's that's the thing. Like, I remember I loved CSI as a kid. And so I would watch CSI on Thursdays. Friday, I would go in and I would talk to to John and Griffin and all of these different guys about CSI. You know, oh, look at the science, which is all bullshit, by the way. Like all of the yeah. things they do on that <laughs> show is absolute bullshit. But it was it was a it was a community driving device, which of course at this point we have, but you binge it. So it's like I know that I can talk to Jessica. Like if we watch the same show, we could talk about the show, but we've already watched twenty plus hours of it. So it's impossible to get into these deep conversations about these little bitty things every week. It becomes one conversation that's yeah. a short conversation where we can't remember everything. Mm -hmm. And so it's this – I mean technology is brilliant, and I like, love it, but it's so much harder to build community around something like that. Yeah. I'm going to get probably burned for saying this, but that's actually kind of what I appreciated about something like The Tiger King. Um, that oh, hit and everybody watched it and then we all talked about it at length and it was kind of this um, unifying cultural phenomenon like we don't really yeah. have anymore because everybody yeah, is specialized into their yeah. right so it's not you know uh, those niche little special things it was something we all experienced and then could all relate to each other oh did you see Tiger King and I kind of appreciate it was like old school in a way. Yeah. And what was what was interesting about Tiger King is that, yes, we did all talk about it for about two weeks and then it was gone. Mm -hmm. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, in the past, it was 24 weeks of stuff to talk about. It was, yeah. you know, you know, once a week we talked about this. And I'm not saying that even those things are perfect. It's like book clubs would be better, but we don't have the mental acuity or the mental patience to to sit through and read a book together. I have yeah. tried twice to start a book club and nobody reads the book. No, nobody. It's nobody even just like read them. one chapter and then we'll talk about it that week and people can't even manage a chapter. And these are people who read. Well, our, I mean, our attention spans have been, I mean, obviously just destroyed. I, I yeah. really, the answer to most of this is just like, you know, Twitter or whatever, but you know, it's fun. So whatever. Well, well and, and I will say, there was what was interesting about Tiger King was that it felt like that. And I like I said, it was very brief, but yeah. it felt like that. But then that was mixed with like the first wave of lockdowns that was mixed with the first, you know, all of that. And then what was crazy about it was maybe two months later, it felt like that had happened 10 years ago. Yes, completely. I completely relate to that. Yeah. There was this Sorry. feeling of how the fuck was that two months ago? Because mm -hmm. it, it doesn't feel like it was. 
just that and the recent past feels faker there's like a derealization of the recent past like i don't know if it's like everything feels like it's moving quicker now um and and it, it just feels like three months ago like it didn't really feel real anything that happens like as yeah. a society online because it, 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 that's a, 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 it's a whole fake thing that we just kind of made somewhere along the line well, and now it, it feels real like, in the moment but it's not well and it's it's like there are a couple of different ways that we could talk about this like for one you and i chris are in the best group chat on twitter together like we we like there are things that are going on in larger subsects of twitter that are still going on for some reason even though we murdered it because it was supposed to be a weekend joke and it's still going on for some reason oh Um, i know what you're talking about (laughs) <laughs> but yeah I, i'm the one that started the chat <laughs> i did <laughs> um but that's what's what's interesting about that is is whip actually brought this up the other day someone had said what was this thing and um he said it was probably six months ago but that's 12 years ago in internet time it yep. wasn't it was like two months ago and he thought it was six he thought he was being generous saying six months but it was like two oh months no ago. <laughs> yeah, and that's how it feels it, and that's what's like, and, and I want to talk about psychiatry and you, you mentioned how coronavirus and all of the situation, the situation that we've, we're in sort of now um, is, but I want to talk about that. But what I was going to say is we, there are a lot of people that have been so bored and have had so much time on their hands during this that they have, it's, it's like, you know, we used to download information at a certain rate. And it was a manageable rate. But now, because of how bored everyone has been, we've started downloading information at a ridiculous rate where we can't. So they say when you read a book, you retain about 10% of what you read when you've you've gotten through with the book. But right now, I think that there are so many people that are taking in so much information I I can't imagine that we're we're retaining more than two or three percent of the information as a whole. That that, that what we used to we used to get ten percent. Like I like I, I I someone tweeted the other day, and this is kind of disconnected, but kind of similar. Uh, I think it was Malice actually. He'd said something about meeting someone who doesn't have strong memories of their childhood and mm. how bizarre and how kind of freaked out that made him, and as I read that and as I thought about it, I was, I started to wonder, is this a millennial thing? Because for me personally, there are a lot, there are several high points that I remember, but there's a lot of my childhood that you have to remind me of the, yeah, to make remember me remember. Most of mine. I'm Gen X. I don't remember most of mine. Well, you so. only have so much Ram in your brain to like retain things and so if it's not important you know, like you throw it yeah. away right well ram would be like short-term memory but yeah 100 percent. but <laughs> being, well I, I almost went into as, the a, same as a tech thing, guy and a neuroscience well, guy i gotta say well actually it'd be like so, a hard drive like i only have a 20 gig hard drive so so let me explain ram to you real quick so there's ram <laughs> and then there's oh, storage RAM is if you have a desk that's how many documents you can keep on your desk and can read it any one time. I'm not going to file this away as important at all. Storage are your, are your, are your, your drawers. 
and anything that you keep in your filing cabinet. So that's you go. fascinating. Isn't oh my it? gosh, I'm learning so much. I learned that Thank at the you. Apple Store. You're welcome. Oh, that's, thank you for just enriching my life, illuminating my so little welcome. brain. Thank is, you. Well, I mean, it's a woman brain, so I only I, I need a man's brain. I know. I mean, I don't know where I'll fit that in between baking banana bread muffins recipes and how to sweep the kitchen. I just don't know where I'll fit that in. But thank you for Th deigning. Throw it away. Throw, throw it away with the the maintenance. Um, manuals for the cars please just forget, <laughs> forget that that exists um but no i do want to get into the fact that you said earlier that what we've been going through with corona coronavirus really the government response to this virus and how that pertains to psychiatry because that because one of the things that i saw probably a week or two ago was someone explaining how um, the way that they finally came to control people and to make them compliant and content within their situation when they were trying, when I think it was Soviet. I can't remember exactly what I was reading because I have the memory of a millennial. Um, make a note. But they were talking about what they did was they took something away and then gave it to them in small bursts. So they could feel the good thing, and then so that made the carrot something that they could dream about while they were getting the stick. And that's 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 one of the things that when I heard some doctor on the news talk about how they can't let people out without masks yet because that takes away the the carrot of getting the vaccine. Remember that? that they have to use the stick mm -hmm. again. And I was watching this and going, this is the most insulting thing that I've ever heard someone say on live TV. Yeah. But that that seems to be what they've done. It seems like right now with the talk of the Delta variant, with the talk of the Lambda variant, with all of these different ideas that they gave us the summer ah. to remind us of what is good so that they can take it away again and it will be more compliant in the future. Well, I think they know it's a seasonal virus and it's going to get worse in the fall and blah, blah, But yeah, no, uh, there's direct correlation. The, the main correlation is the argument from, uh, you know, scientific consensus. Like the scientific consensus has been wrong so many times. Like thalidomide, like millions of babies were born with deformed limbs because they were like, everybody said it was great, except for this one woman at the FDA one woman and she's like no this is not right and blah blah, blah. and she fought it and fought it and fought it um uh you know we have uh the nobel prize for medicine i believe that putting people in a diabetic coma won a nobel prize for for medicine for psychiatry um wow. and i believe that and it definitely in 1949 uh the frontal lobotomy won the nobel prize so they were both roundly held as miracle cures in psychiatry Miracle cures and the whole everybody. Right? So if you went against it, you'd be like, well, the scientific consensus says you should stick something up your nose and rearrange your brains, your frontal lobe, you know? Uh, you, you cannot argue from that. Uh, and the other thing is that science hasn't, isn't just broken now, it's been broken for a very long time, especially mm -hmm. in psychology mm -hmm. and psychiatry. I mean, psychology, yeah. you don't even know, like, it's depressing as someone who studied psychology, like, 
you can't even, I mean, even going back to like no drone experiments, there's problems with all, everything, everything. So, uh, I mean, we can't rely on science because the, what, um, what we didn't really account for is human interference, whether it's conscious or subconscious. They, there's always going to be some kind of bias. Um, and right now we're looking at, I mean, with the, SSRIs. I mean, we've been dealing with that for 30 years, and there's really not any proof. I could go into a whole diatribe of the SSRIs and the antipsychotics because that's like the paradigm right now in psychiatry, and it doesn't work, and it actually makes things worse. If the they did a study where the recovery rate for non never medicated depressives, they had a depressive episode, and after one year, 84 percent, I believe it was 84 percent, um, were in remission. And it was gone. People that are medicated was three percent. Wow! You're creating you're 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 creating with these SSRIs and uh, SNRs and other things. You're creating a permanent state of depression in someone's brain. And I think that's what my depression comes from. Is when I was a kid, I you know I was from I had a divorce and all that, whatever. Like most kids of my age, and um, I was really depressed all the time and blah blah. So. My parents were working, you know, all that, and uh, it was a lot easier to, it's a lot easier to give a kid drugs than it is to give them the love and the attention that they need, and it, it's nothing wrong with them. They thought that, that the psychiatrist, I remember the relief when I went in there, and I was like, the psychiatrist is like, oh, yeah, you have this and this, and I'm like, wait, so I'm not just like a bad person, like it's not my fault, so it, it, it kind of it's a game we're playing with these psychiatrists and it removes the personal responsibility for your behavior. And at yeah. the same time, yeah. they give you this new solution and the new solution. Like, I believe that if, I mean, I've been on, I was on maybe 10 different ones when I was a kid. And I believe that as an adult, all my depression is the direct result of uh, being medicated as a kid. Mm -hmm. They, they permanently downregulate your neurotransmitters. You know? Well, and, and, and let me just say, I, my dad did not believe in ADD or ADHD at all. And I, my, you know, there are a lot of people who argued with him, but it was one of those things that always stuck with me as interesting because for one, boys are different than girls and boys mm -hmm. are heavily diagnosed with these things and heavily sedated on these things. And secondly, the Prussian school system and the, the schooling that we do is heavily based on how girls work. It's, it's, it's almost specifically designed to go well with girls. Um, it's an accident, but it is on a percentage. I don't yeah. think it was on purpose because girls, they didn't really care about girls learning back then, but um, right. You know, um, so, well, wasn't it based I, I on, wasn't it based on creating factory workers? Exactly. Um, well, it's a factory right. system. We we just discovered, you know, mass production, and we're like, hey, why don't we do this with kids too? And it just doesn't right. work, and it has never worked. And there would be no ADD without public schools. It would not exist. Well, and 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 that was one of those things with within my family is my I never went to a public school. I did go to a private school, and then I was homeschooled. But my brother went to public school for maybe a year. I think. And within the year, he was di the, the counselor or whatever at the school said he was ADD and he needed Ritalin. And my mom goes, no, that's my baby. That's how he is. He's a little boy. 
this is this will destroy the little part of him that is who he is. And I'm not saying that there aren't people who are adults who take some medication and it gets better for them. I'm, I'm no expert in this whatsoever. Um, I'm sure that there are some, some different medicines or natural substances that might help me focus. Um, but that was my mom's decision. And I think it was, I think it was first, first or second grade for him. Maybe it was later. But she she pulled him out and we went to private school because she felt like he would lose. And this is this kind of ties back to boredom. He would lose his creative streak. Yeah. Yep. Always. And, Always. and like that, that's one of the things is I, I never claim to be the funniest person in the world. I can throw a quip. I can I can I can stand up with a lot of good people, but if it weren't for me being bored and going, Hey, can I sound like Elvis? I couldn't, I was seven, but <laughs> you know, these different things, but that I, was wouldn't funny have, as shit. I wouldn't have grown the way that I have. Like I am from Alabama. I may not sound like it, but it's because when I was young, I started trying to change my voice to sound like other people. Mm-hmm. And so I have, I have some pretty strong voice control based purely on my boredom and wanting to make people laugh. And so it's, it's interesting to me that even though there are times I struggle to get work done or struggle to focus on different tasks, I truly believe if my little brain hadn't been bored, you wouldn't get any of like, I'm not saying there are millions or thousands or hundreds of people who like what I do. But there's a small amount of people out there who appreciate me, and it's because I was allowed to be bored as a child. So I'm having this thought about how we deal with people who have depression and people who have ADHD or, you know, problems with attention and stuff like that. And it all comes down to this idea that um, everything can be cured, that we have the hubris in science to believe (laughs) that we could cure something because it's a problem. Therefore, if we throw any number of drugs at it, eventually we'll find the one that makes them all better. Well, what if that's not the case? What if depression is something that some people have? And instead of learning to embrace ourselves in depression and handle our depression, we're given this sort of carrot and hope that, okay, it can be cured. And if you just put yourself through the ringer over and over and over again, eventually you'll be normal instead of learning to deal with yourself as you are. And exactly. I think that's maybe a great crime. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. If you look at, um, there was a bunch of studies that they did where the outcomes for schizophrenics in third world countries where they didn't have access to any of these medications, any talk therapies, nothing, were drastically better than the recovery rates in the United States. That and does not surprise the, me. Uh, Yeah, and I think the first reason is because, and it's an important thing, we try to simulate it with the state, but it's uh, this this communal and uh, familial, like, community, social net, you know what I mean, social support from from everyone around you, and I think that in the third world, you have to have that. If Crazy Uncle Tommy is doing crazy things, then the whole family, it's up to them to be like, hey, Tommy, like, whatever, we got to do this, and you you know, you got to work, or you got to do this, or whatever, you have to, instead of just shipping them off to Crazy Uncle Tommy at Christmas time in the, in the psych wards, empty. 
empty. There'll be nobody mm. there because everybody invites crazy Uncle Tommy back to um, for Christmas and they give him a shower and shave and they give him some gifts or whatever and they clean him up and then they get around January they start getting tired and it comes still back up again. And I think we instead of taking personal responsibility for not even just our family members, but uh, members of the community that are hurting, instead of doing that, we're just like, eh, I paid my taxes, somebody will take care of it. You well, know? and it, also, like, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Kim, but I'm, I grew up poor, and so I didn't have access to doctors. Mm -hmm. um, and I had, I have depression, and I've had to learn to live with my depression rather than mm -hmm. having, you know, millions of different types of neurotransmitters thrown at me. And so now as an adult, when my depression comes on, I kind of look at it like a storm and I say, mm -hmm. okay, it's going to rain for a while, but I know that yes. eventually it will clear up and then I will see the sun again and it will be fine. And so I have like a little kit that <laughs> when I get depressed, I know, okay, make sure you drink water, make sure you take a shower. You know, it's just, um, I don't know that I would have developed those skills if instead mm -hmm. of going, this is part of my life, um, mm -hmm. they had told me, no, no, there's a cure, there's a cure, there's a cure. So I haven't been looking for a cure. I've just sort of accepted this as part of the, the whole Jessica yeah. tapestry. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You don't have to change anything. We'll just give you this pill. But if, right. if, if, if you know, there's a lot of people living Affluence in, in is a the life enemy that in this is not. Exactly. A lot of people are living in a life that if you took a non-depressed person and inserted them into that life, then that person would become depressed. And there's no incentive <laughs> yeah. for them to make anything better. If you just right. uh, no, just take the pill. If the pill doesn't work, we'll just give you another pill, and then another pill, and then right. another pill. Right. You know? And, and I, haven't I, mean, I haven't had a lot of reasons to uh, be thankful for growing up poor, but I think yeah, I just really landed on a that's big a really one. one. Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Horatius brought this up, and this is something that I've been thinking about. I don't know if I've said it, Jessica. You'll have to tell me if I have. But acceptance mm -hmm. of what you cannot change is very important. Oh, it is. Um, and if, if, if I had to recommend one book to read, it's it's a big book, but um, read uh, The Liberated Mind by Stephen Hayes. He's the inventor of uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, and that's a big part of that. It's a mindfulness mixed with acceptance. It, it's really good. Uh, the whole book is really worth it, so I would recommend that. Yeah. If I had to recommend anything to improve anybody's mental health. And one thing on that point of acceptance, what you cannot change is important that I want to mention is the fact, I don't know how it was for Gen X. I don't know how it was for boomers, but millennials, I can tell you from firsthand experience, we're told that we can change the world. We were told that we're here to make massive change on a global scale. And I think that one of the things that I realized, especially within the last few months, definitely over the last decade, um, but especially over the last few months, is I am not meant to change the world. That is not within my purview. That is not something that I should strive for. Because, and, and that people would say that's a black-pilled position. You can say that all you want. But if I can't tend my own garden, there's mm. no reason why, should, why I should you be trying the right. to tend the world's. Well, and you do change is, the world by tending your own garden. You exactly. Know? And, and that's, that's my whole thing. Like I was going to, I was thinking to myself earlier, like after I tell them about psychiatry and then they're like, well, what's the answer? And then like, I'm like, well, first of all, I don't feel, I'm not one of those people that feels the need to have an answer or whatever, but you can change the world by each one of us, like doing things to make it 
to make your life better and the lives of your kids, but like homeschool and you know what I mean? There's a million different things that you can do, but it doesn't mean you have to affect everybody else. It means you change you and then your neighbor's changing them and then everybody's changing themselves. Let's see, the the only answer is uh, everybody to start making the right choices when it comes to um, how to live well and and Mm -hmm. i think that (laughs) when you start changing yourself and you start having these moments of clarity these moments of being able to actually change something in your life you become a spotlight to a better life and i think that that is the most important thing that we can do is to live a good life and set that as an example and so So, on that theme oh go ahead i I was just going to say on what jessica said before is it's not our place and that's yeah. something, uh, what was it, um, Jeremy Kaufman from Odyssey tweeted, I don't think it was yesterday, that Ron Paul failed, that uh, Rothbard failed, that Mises failed. We don't have a libertarian society. What are you going to do differently? And my response was, I think that the realization that it's neither my job or nor necessarily um, desirable to try to affect liberty or freedom on a global scale, especially one that's state-centered, because that's what all of these people were talking about. Mm-hmm. They centered the state, and then you have to do this, that, or the other in order to fix everyone. And I don't like. I I I think that all dictators should be strung up. I think they should be boiled. But at the same time, it's not my job to impose freedom and my mindset and my philosophy on the world. That's not fair. That's not what everyone wants. I think the number one thing that anybody in the liberty movement can do to promote liberty is take it upon yourself to go find people that are in trouble, that are less fortunate than you. And if you don't have the money to donate, then go yourself and volunteer and do these things. Because all we hear again and again is we need the state to help poor people. We need the state to help the less fortunate. No, we don't. You have to help the less fortunate. Exactly. Because they don't want to do it themselves. They want other people. Asheville is filled with all these rich white women and they all are like, Oh, we need to help the poor by voting this, voting that. And then every time my wife works for a homeless shelter, every time she has something and she needs help with something, none of them are anywhere to be found, but they're like, yeah, "Yeah, I voted for Joe Biden. So everything's solved now. Right. So um, I used to be a leftist SJW, the exact kind of woman that you're talking about that would have voted for Joe Biden and thought, well, I did my part. And one of the people who is responsible for, for breaking me from that ideology is Jordan Peterson, which is why I'm actually like really grateful to him. I know not everybody is people have problems with him that are valid and I, I don't disagree with those things. Um, but one of the things he said that really affected me out of that mentality was that in clinical psychology, you learn that the chances that the intervention that you have chosen for your patient having the positive effect that you desire it to have is almost zero. So know before you start poking around in someone's life that the chances that you will do more damage than you will fix them is much, much greater than the chances that you will fix them. So he kind of translated that up to the people who want to like save the world. Like, you know, the chances that your intervention for saving the world will have the positive effect that you want it to have is almost nothing. So, you know, you need to, you know, I the phrase, make your own bed, tend your own garden. If your house is a mess and you go out there and start tapping the world, 
the the idea that you're going to somehow fix it is is you know you're likely yeah. to do more damage because you can't even oh, vacuum your own always, rug you know almost always the need the urgent need to do something is it's almost always worse I, I i said on my old account i got twitter deleted uh i used to always say if you stood and you looked back at the path of history you'd see enormous piles of corpses that are only there because one person thought they knew what's best for everyone else. And that's yes. all it is. All of history, every bad thing in history is all because Hitler thought he was going to create this new race and save his country and like Stalin and like Mao, the Soviets new man and the entire yeah. history of mankind back down to recorded history. It's always whatever, every, whenever someone thinks that they know what's best for everyone else, it never ends well ever. Uh, and there's a, a perfect C.S. Lewis quote for this that I happened to share from when I shared it the first time a decade ago on Facebook, which is, of all tyrannies, a, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. Mm -hmm. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated, but those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. Yeah. Yeah, that's I mean, right. That, that's COVID people right there. Uh, that's yeah. Right there. Yep. They know it's and, and it's 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 so apt. And I, I want to say, one thing I want to say is a lot of times when you hear someone on a podcast or um in some form of where they're they're broadcasting their voice or their thoughts in whatever medium is there's this assumption that this person who's telling you like me to tend your own garden that he is doing well that he is tending his own garden that he's i'm not my garden's I'm, a mess don't listen my, to me <laughs> my garden's a mess my wife loves the corner <laughs> I'm, I'm actually my garden's great just my my metaphorical <laughs> garden yeah my medical my metaphorical garden is a mess he projected right that one <laughs> yeah. no i have a, like my real garden's great it's just my metaphorical yeah, this, yeah. This, this you you would like chris for multiple reasons jessica this is just one of them but my metaphorical garden is in shambles right now and i'm struggling to get it back and so when I say to tend your own garden, when I have said multiple things on Twitter, when I'm making these these things, these stances or these takes that sound good, it's because I'm directly preaching to myself. The intro when I talked about my broken glasses is no joke. Like look at this. Look at look at this look at this garbage. It's destroyed. <laughs> I've had so but, many pairs like that. <sighs> But I want to say thank you to Chris because yesterday I was in the group chat and I was like so mad about it. And that dude sent me the money to get a new pair that will arrive tomorrow. Hey. When my wife and I were struggling, I had those glasses and they were broken in 50. I had a friend who used to once in a while just, you know, and we were so grateful. So I'm just passing it on. It's not really that's, a, that's a mensch move right there, sir. You're a true blue mensch. It's and so when I say this, I am trying to tend my own garden. Ah. Chris is Chris is right. Well, instead of tending your own garden, just demand that other people tend it for you. That's how it works now. 
just be like, somebody needs to fix my garden or else. <laughs> well, and that, I'm going to try that so tomorrow. Funny. I'm going to walk out there and yell until exactly. someone comes and weeds for me. <laughs> and, that, and that's what's so funny is like a lot of times I don't ask for help because I'm so hell bound and oh, determined I to get this figured out. And so I always appreciate the fact that there are people who see the need and I think and, and meet it. And so I think that that's what's the important lesson is well, what I'm saying is my job is to tend to me, tend to my family and to tend to my neighbors. And that's where I cut the line at this point. And so I may we cut also, it before the neighbors, but I just want to say with Chris saying that earlier, you proved it yesterday and I couldn't appreciate that more. We constantly extol the virtues of self-reliance to the point where we won't ask for help when we need it sometimes. And I think this maybe, and I, you know, I don't want to speak for men because I'm not a men's, but um, I think for men, it can be especially hard to ask for help because they have that stigma more than women do that they're supposed to be completely self-reliant. And so you're not even, you're not even allowed to have emotions. And so God forbid you're actually sad. You know, God forbid you actually need, need a hug. Oh, yeah. you know? I, I have a feeling I, uh, yeah, no, no, no. I'm, all I'm saying is that yesterday when I was sharing with Jessica where my mindset was and when I told the boys where I was, it was painful for me because I don't like to sh because I know that in, in both of these situations, I don't have to worry about showing my belly and it being stabbed, like I don't have to worry about that, but there's still that, I don't know if it's because of how men are raised or whatever it is, but I, I do not thing. like I think that. We, we don't want to show weakness. I mean, uh, vulnerability and weakness, like up until a few years ago, that was something that was really difficult. Now it's social currency. So yeah, and, and now and, and Chuck Schumer's crying on TV. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Well, we need more lizards. Crying, don't like lizards don't have products. Come on, <laughs> sorry. Well, they have simulators. I gotta make a. I gotta make a lizard joke if you bring up Chuck <laughs> Schumer. Come on, you know. <laughs> um, one of the things that I wanted to mention um, is one. I'm on TikTok because I'm hip, and so I've seen uh, two videos. You break your hip recently. One of which was a guy talking. I think it, it may have been a TED talk. I'm not sure what the, the context was, but he was talking about SSRIs and he was talking about the specific, I can't remember the name of the drug, but he was talking about the specific drug that was studied and it was found to be just as good, if not better than other drugs and that it was good for anyone who was depressed. And what he found when he looked into the studies is that there were like in one of the instances that it was better, it was good for people who um, were depressed was there was one study that said that and four that were not published and thrown away that yeah. said the opposite. And then when it was the same thing was true for it being um, played against other um, SSRIs and it showed that it wasn't better but there were two studies that said it was and six were thrown away. Something along those lines. Oh, no, it's a constant. Consensus. Yep. Right. Consensus. Exactly. The, the, yeah. the, it's created. Consensus is created via political means, not via scientific means. Yeah, there's via no political science, means. There's no such thing as scientific consensus. <laughs> right. Not, yeah. Not, there, not if you're a real scientist. There's, right. but, uh, well, SSRIs in general, like, 
they're mostly shown to be around the same as a placebo. But okay, like okay, there was a first of all the entire myth that depression is caused by an imbalance of neurotransmitters. There's no evidence ever to support that, and a lot of evidence to that, that counters it. Uh, mm -hmm. They did a study where they measured the 5-HIIA, which is a, a serotonin metabolite. Uh, it's like a byproduct of serotonin in the brain, so we can kind of measure like the amount of serotonin or whatever. And they took it. You can only take it from the cerebrospinal fluid, so they did that, and they measured it, and there was no difference between depressed people and non-depressed people, but people that were previously treated with an antidepressant, there was mm -hmm. a difference between depressed that had been, oh my God, there's like bats everywhere tonight. Oh, there's a sweet moss. Anyways, um, yeah, there was, but in people that had been previously treated with anti, uh, antidepressants, there was a difference. So it's showing that there's a depression that's unnatural or maybe unnatural, but it's a process that you go through. But once you have taken an antidepressant, then you may have lifelong antidepressant caused iatrogenic depression. You know what I mean? And that's the big thing with me is it permanent, it may permanently alter your brain structure so you have depression for the rest of your life. So you have to take these pharmaceuticals and make more money. And oh, this one doesn't work anymore. We got this new one that's that one was it's, a, it's coming off patent anyway. We got a new one on patent, and you can take this one. You yeah, know, it's just a constant, yeah, it's just incentive, it's perverse incentives everywhere. That's a whole other podcast. I could do a whole podcast on just perverse incentives in society because you know, that's really the, the root of all evil. Well, and, 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 and that sucks because they're sorry that sucks because they're playing god too and you know you permanently messing up somebody's brain saying okay this medication doesn't work for me try another try another try another and it's never you know the, the answer is always some other medication instead you know just go until yeah, you find and, one that'll work yeah exactly and they and they try to keep down like um like i used to when i worked on the unit we used to always have like pens and clipboards and everything with all the names of them. And I would never use any of those to show any of them to the patients. Everybody else would, whatever. Um, but, and they try to make it like it's an evil thing with the psychiatrist. But honestly, the psychiatrists, they aren't taught any kind of therapy. Most psychiatrists that I know, I would I would debate a psychiatrist yep. all day long. I'm not, yep. I'm not worried about that. Um, but not on like medication dosages, but you know, on general theory. But, um, but the main thing, just lost it. Uh, so psychiatrists, like oh, they need, they need not well, but when you have a hammer, nutrition. everything looks, it's the whole, if you have a hammer, right. everything looks like a nail. That's what they have. Those are the yes. tools that we have. Like, they, he can't just be like, yeah, go do ayahuasca or something, you know? He's got to use yeah. <laughs> And he has to diagnose you. You cannot go in there without a diagnosis. He has to diagnose you or you don't get your insurance will pay. So you have Definitely to get a diagnosis. Do. If you're not crazy, you're going to get a diagnosis or your insurance isn't going to pay. Yeah. Yep. And that's the other thing is the way that the insurance system has altered medical treatment that's in awesome. that the doctors are looking at how they will get paid as opposed to what is best for their patients. And, you know, I experienced that with um, my doctors to the point where I don't seek out their help anymore because I'm like, no, you're you're trying to use me as a method of billing. And not not at all, not at all concerned with my health care, you know. So I pretty much have to be on my deathbed for me to go 
see a doctor at this point. Me yeah. too. I, I trust me. I go to the VA, so yeah, I, it takes a lot. Yeah. They they left me there for six hours on the emergency room floor, saying that I was faking it to get drugs. And my wife dragged me to another hospital where I started to go psychotic, and it, it turned out I had meningitis. And they never oh, took no. my temperature, 106 degree temperature. They never even took my temp. They just left me there. They're like, yeah, he's drug seeking. Because I had been in there for headaches for like weeks at a time. And then I, I went in there and they're like, no, he's just looking for pain meds or something. So she dragged me to a real hospital and I got better. So I have a lot. I, I don't have a lot of love for I have, I have chronic back pain. And I don't go talk to doctors about it because back pain is the number one thing that drug seekers will go to the doctor complaining of so that they can get drugs. I'm afraid to talk to my doctor about my back pain because I don't want them to write drug seeker in my chart. And then yeah. the one time I did go, they gave me a bottle with 90 tramadol in it when all I wanted them to do was give me a referral to get an MRI. I wanted them to look at my back and see what was wrong with it. And they're like, no, here, have pills. Like, I don't yeah, want tramadol these. Tramadol is disgusting. I would rather have yeah. tramadol. It's awful. Ugh. And yeah. to be honest, that was that was one of the moments that kind of disillusioned me from medical care. That I was like, I can't believe you just handed me 90 tramadol, which is, uh, you know, I don't know a lot about pharmaceuticals, but that's the drug that everybody gets addicted to. And I'm like, are you effing kidding me? I And they didn't give me the MRI referral. I still have not had an MRI on my back. Well, it costs less to so. give drugs than to give you those. And they get incentives, yep. I'm sure. I get a lot of and then every time I go to a new doctor, like I went to an endocrinologist because I had a hormone imbalance, and they say, so you're taking tramadol? And I'm like, that was mm -hmm. five years ago. They gave me one prescription mm -hmm. five years ago. I didn't even take them. And every doctor goes, so you're on tramadol? No. no. Like, y'all don't even know what you're talking about. Yep. So, oh, no, no, they never know. do. No, no. And yeah. that's a big thing you brought up, endocrinologists. I wanted to say that, too. When I was working in inpatient psych, uh, me and one of the nurses that I worked with, one of the few good psych nurses that I've ever met, um, this guy, Jerry, he was great. But we really tried to push to um, test every, especially every female that comes in with depressive symptoms for thyroid dysfunction and hormone panels. And they refused because of the money. And then we were doing them anyway. Like, he's like, he's like, oh, do you feel like blah, 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 like something that would, you know, cause a, cause them to have a thyroid panel, right? And all these women with depressive symptoms, when we got them to test, like half the time it was thyroid problems. And they would have been on SSRI, which would have not helped them and yep. would have permanently put them in a state of depression when all mm -hmm. they needed was to have the thyroid evaluated. And mm -hmm. I think hormone mm -hmm. panels and, and testosterone and thyroid and a lot of that is really a lot of the depression that we're seeing uh, and nobody's really testing for it it's not a it's really cheap to give a bunch of synthroid which is off label it's like a off patent so you know it's not a big money maker so i ended up taking and i I don't know that I recommend this. This is not medical advice to anybody, but because I wasn't finding help with my doc my actual doctors, I went online and started looking at um, homeopathic medicine. And one of the things that was suggested suggested for hormone imbalance was a um, an herb called ashwagandha. ashwagandha. And when I started taking the ashwagandha, that. yeah, it 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 not only brought my hormone levels back to normal, and they were they were off the charts. And they brought my hormone levels back normal, but they decreased my depression. Mm -hmm. And um, so I don't know if like, I, I try not to use it too much because I don't want the effect to wear off, but 
it's just amazing to me that a, a, a root, which is something you mm -hmm. can buy over the counter, had more mm -hmm. um, effect on me than months worth of different medications and different therapies. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I I asked my endocrinologist, is it okay if I try this? He said, no, it's not FDA approved. And I don't listen to authority. So I did it anyway. And it ended up being what helped. So, yeah. you know, I did the same thing with cocaine and my doctor's like, no, don't take it. I'm like, eh, I think it'll help my pressure. <laughs> Works out great. I smoke crack every day. It's not even addictive. It's great. Have you ever smoked Parmesan? Uh, not yet, but I'm, I've been sending messages to Hunter for a while now to try to set up something. <laughs> Um, one out. thing I would have totally hang with Hunter Biden like anytime. I think most of the people he in that group chat based. would. I know he's a yeah. viewer, so I, if he's out there, you know. Okay, so <laughs> um, he seems uh, he seems based. In reality, he is not. I just want to clarify no, my statement no, there. Sure. Yeah, he's he seems based on the outside. He is not in reality. Also, he is um, a front for his father's bribes, and he's using art to do it, and that really pisses me off. So. Yeah. No. Can can I just Biden. say, there was one good thing that I saw recently out of TikTok, and that was I saw a TikTok of a guy who was talking about. Um, he said, "You know, I've always had a hard hard time finding a job that suited my needs." And the long and the short of it, he was talking about how he was ADHD, and so he created. He had this video, and he said, "You know, if you are." what I'm going to call a wild card and have these ADHD symptoms, then I would like you to, to go on this website. I think you use survey monkey or something and give me your information. And I'm going to talk to different companies who need what you provide. And I'm going to help you set up interviews so that you can provide work and labor to someone who needs that exact type of thing. Mm -hmm. And the net, he thought that maybe it would get 40 views and he might get, you know, this maybe up to 100 people. And it was thousands of people who had been diagnosed ADHD or who had been told that they're screwed up or had been told that um, they can't work in this type of position. And there were, I think he, after the first day, there were, 50 companies that contacted him through TikTok to say that we need this type of person for this type of job and thousands of people signed up through his survey monkey. And so I think that not to sound like your hippie dippy um, libertarian person, but the free market, there was this guy who had an idea and there were companies that were like, no, we need that kind of creativity. We need that kind of independence. We need that kind of, thing and they used a quote-unquote mental illness as a means to help people find jobs and that's that's great no, that's great i actually have i've had a theory like i've never actually talked about it with anyone but i had a theory a long time that adhd as we see it today is actually an adaptive response to technology and that where our brains are shifting in response we're in a we're in a transitionary period uh, transitional period so it's hard to see while we're in it but i think afterwards we're going to look and we're going to see that a add is our brains adapting to this new way of of information absorption where it's 
parallel processing as opposed to serial processing. If you know about like gotcha. computers and things like that, like I think it's you're you can take a, a lot of different things at once as opposed to focusing on one thing. Like in the old days, like almost nobody that grew up today could go back and go to Oxford in 1902. You're right. going to have to read like these long, dense books and love like Latin. You know, you're never going to be able to do that because our brains are, they don't work that way anymore. They've adapted. And I, I, I think that ADHD is our brains kind of, uh, our brains are very plastic. They're very malleable and they yes. change. And that's how psychedelics work to help things is they kind of, they let your brain, they get rid of all the old connections and let you make new connections, you know? And it's just like the death and rebirth thing, you know, neurologically as well as uh, spiritually as well as psychologically. But with uh, ADHD, I really think that it's our brains adapting and it's going to, it's not going to be maladaptive. It's maladaptive to the old ways, but it's adapted to the new ways. And the old ways are is public schooling and, and right. schooling in the classroom and desk. And it's not, it's maladaptive for that, but it's not going to be maladaptive for the next thing. So right, I, and I really think I think we should be designing education around ADD as opposed to um, trying to drug it out of existence. So, if I can break in just one second, a lot of people in the chat are asking where to get ashwagandha, and I did put a tiny URL. I just learned how to do that, by the way. Um, but I want to make a note about buying ashwagandha, which is that the source where it's grown really matters. If you buy ashwagandha that's grown in China or India, it can have a lot of heavy metal um, pollutants in it, which are, you know, not good. I found when I take ashwagandha that's grown in China, I get headaches from it. So I put that URL in there. It's ashw organic ashwagandha that's grown in Canada, and it doesn't give me a headache. So if you're if you're My sensitive wife had that to same problem. Yep. Right. Okay. So in the, it, it really does matter. It, it affects it the quality matter. a lot. Yeah. So mm -hmm. um, use the link and the brand that I sent. Um, it's from Bear Organics. And I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're good. I think, though, that you make a good point about how times have changed and how the functions of the human brain have changed and we need to adapt. Because I mean, you're, you're talking about Oxford, but look at, you know, 100 years ago people were working on factory lines and they did the same exact task over and over and over again and most people cannot do that anymore in yeah. fact it's been automated to the point that people don't need to do that so that's that's good i would say yeah. um but it's good that there are these little aspects like i said in this tiktok video that there are people who are saying i don't work this way but I can work and I can do multiple things. So it's, uh, I have been trying to get this job recently and I won't say with who or what it is exactly, but even though the pay is less than what I'm making right now or what I have been making rather, cause I'm kind of out of work at the moment. Um, I would be able to put on several different hats. And so I would be able to do one thing that faces people and talks to people, which is something I'm good at and I enjoy and also I would be able to do some design and some some creative work, which I need to to have any sort of happiness. I like to create something, um, which is why I put so much time into this show and making video stuff is because I have to create something. Yeah. Um, but I think it's really good to see not just that people are noticing it, 
but that the people who are trying to make the changes are the people who are affected by it. Because I think a lot of times when it's led from the outside, it's far more deleterious to the human race as a whole than when it's someone who's felt it, who knows what it's like and knows what they need, if that makes any sense. So I like seeing someone who's felt the effects and who's experienced these things leading the charge and making changes, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. Of course. Well, it's always, I don't know. I, I agree 100%. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, what was I going to, I was going to say, okay, so I feel like we kind of talked about coronavirus and how things are and how psychiatry, I feel like we've gone in a lot of different directions because that's how the show goes. There's never a point A to point B, point C, et cetera. Um, but when it comes to psychiatry, it does seem like there's been a lot of torture of people in the past to try to quote unquote better them. Um, mm -hmm. But what do you think, do you think this, the thing that makes it as, so mental health as, or mental illness as a myth, do you think that it's the ties to the state and the ties to compliance, or do you think it's more than that? Uses it. I, I don't think there's a nefarious thing. I think everybody understands that there's people that have mental problems, and they always have, and you know, uh, back two, three thousand years ago, maybe they would have been shamans or something else, you know, or, uh, mm. or they were artists. A thousand years ago, they were artists or whatever, you know, or the town drunk or whatever. But I think that um, a lot of our mentally ill are ending up in prisons and psychiatric facilities and being drugged, um, where they lose all sense of self and um, everything that's. Most of the drugs that we have now, basically, they just they sedate you, make you more compliant, and they take away all of the bits of you that make you who you are. And I think that there's not really a nefarious purpose. It's, I mean, there is, with the pharmaceutical companies, obviously, just keep selling the same drug over and over again, basically. But um, I really think that uh, most psychiatrists and therapists really want to help people. But I think that the things that you can do to help yourself are basically free and nobody can really profit from them. And uh, I think that people don't want to hear, yeah, you got to take personal responsibility for yourself. People want to hear, here's a magic pill and it's going to solve all your problems. And that's I noticed. It it's, it's, it's both of us. It's not just the psychiatrist. It's the patients. Too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You had that, said earlier, you said earlier about contentedness and I actually wrote it down because I wanted to bring it back up. And you'd, uh, you had mentioned about like, um, like the way that it, as long as you're not causing a problem, we've kind of conflated that with mental wellness. And, mm -hmm. but it's also on the end of, like you said, with the patient that we have determined that we must be content all the time. And we're yes. completely unwilling to live with any kind of discomfort by like even the mm -hmm. slightest discomfort. I've had a headache all day. Um, I posted about the air quality not being so good across the uh, mainland US right now. And um, that might be the cause of my headache. But the point was, um, when my husband came home, he said, how are you doing? So I kind of have a headache. He says, did you take something for it? I thought, gee, you know, it's not debilitating. I'm not, I'm a little uncomfortable, but I'm not debilitated. And it's just automatic that, well, if you're uncomfortable, take something. Well, yeah. wh what's so wrong with being just a little bit uncomfortable? It's not hurting me in any way. Not really. Not I mean, yeah, if I weren't... 
able to function, I would take aspirin. But, mm-hmm. you know, I that's not why. You know, it's okay no, for I me agree. to be uncomfortable. Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. Well, we'll think about all, like, uh, the monks and people that have achieve enlightenment. They don't do it by, like, yeah, I played Nintendo 64 for, like, 48 hours and I achieved enlightenment. No, they, like, sit on a roof uh, mountaintop and it's freezing and whatever yes. you know i mean that's a lot of uh like like rogan talks about like freezing himself or whatever and you know it, it's a lot of the you have to if, if there's no adversity in modern life then you have to create it i think that's why people love uh camping and things like that even though obviously mm-hmm. even camping now at a campground or whatever it's not really uh roughing it but uh whenever I, I i'm all, hiking uh, go ahead Sorry. No, no, no. Whenever you're hiking. Well, I was saying, whenever I'm hiking, I always get this sense of back in the old days, this is how people would travel. And they would go mm-hmm. from one place to another. And sometimes it would take them a couple of days. And I, when I'm in the middle of my hike, I always get this sense of, man, I wish we were going somewhere. Like, I wish there was like a point to this journey instead of I'm going in a circle and coming back around to the parking lot eventually. Mm-hmm. And yes, I'm getting exercise. I'm getting outside. There is a point to the journey, like in the mm-hmm. real sense but like at the same time you know you used to this is how you would travel there's something very natural about walking to your destination we don't do that anymore because we drive everywhere and i'm believe me i love i love being in an air-conditioned car don't get me wrong (laughs) no we're we're trying to my wife and i are legitimately trying to create hardship and things like that like um i think with my 13 year old maybe in the fall we're gonna try to just just do the Adirondack Trail just through North Carolina, like just that section. Cool, I mean? yes. With very little yeah. stuff. Like I want him to be a little hungry. I want him to be a little. Thir- I want him to be mm-hmm. really tired. You know, want because when you get to the end, he, yeah, you you never know who you are until you push yourself further than where you can, what you think you can do. You know, like how how good food tastes after you've been yes. fasting for a oh, while. Food yes, never tastes yes. so good as after no. you've been fasting. Yeah. There's there's no better seasoning than hunger. Hunger, are you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but that's 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 interesting to me because it makes me think about back in the day when I wanted to hike to Machu Picchu, when I wanted mm-hmm. to do the hard hike up to the beautiful place, and uh, one one conversation that we're gonna have in the future is with my friend Kim, who's really dove in. It. Dovin dived into um, the philosophy it. of stoicism. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I came across recently was the concept of enough and having enough. Because contentedness is one thing, but being able to feel that you have enough, that you're subsisting, that you're able to function that you're able to live and even find joy within enough rather than excess is such an important thing. And it, I didn't know it was important until I came across someone talking about it. And Um, gratitude, gratitude ties into that so much because people have no gratitude anymore. Like they don't understand. Like you were just saying, like you're walking and like people used to have to walk like 50 miles to go do something whatever, and you got the air-conditioned car. Now, people are not grateful. They're like, oh, I have an air-conditioned car, but it's only a, a, a Subaru, and I want to... But it's a tempo, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will say, I think, when you were talking about that, one of the things that I thought about is the false adversity of politics. 
Mm. Because, mm-hmm. because this is something that I am learning my way through. And, you know, we've talked about different aspects of that learning in this episode. Um, but people, people think that tribalism is the problem when I think that the problem with tribalism is if your tribe is too big. Because if you haven't met with and, and the person who is the chief of your tribe doesn't know your name, your tribe's too big. Yeah. Period. But I think that the problem is that we are affluent in a lot of ways. Right now, I don't feel very affluent, but we are affluent. We have very little adversity. And so there are tons of people who are so starved for the fight, who are so starved. Oh, they want to be those hippies from the 60s so bad. Yeah, there's so nowhere, nowhere. My wife is Cuban, and there's nowhere that more exemplifies that than the suburbanite white girl who just learned about communism in her freshman year of college, and she's telling yeah. my wife, whose mom, like, and dad fled Cuba where half their family were murdered, and they're like, "Oh, Cuba's pretty great, actually. Have you heard about their healthcare? They got a big literacy rate. Like, there's nothing worse than these Americans who." think that they're victims and they're not they're living in the most affluent place in the affluent time in the world kings did not have the luxury that i have yeah Yeah. people are looking for adversity and they have found it in politics Mm -hmm. and it's become so insular it's become so um niche it's become so individual that there are these little little gangs of people who want to be even different and have more adversity than others. So they join these other smaller groups. There's all of this going on. Victimhood is social capital. It is. And it's, it's, it's bizarre to me because I am, believe it or not, I was raised as a man, you know? (laughs) And so, so what happened? I don't, I I, I grew my hair out and (laughs) lost my testicles, but no, but I, I was raised They're under your beard. (laughs) Okay, so the best alien in Men in Black, <laughs> the Men in Black series, was the Balchinian. I don't know if you remember this, but yes. the, I think it was Men in Black Two. Um, Filed that away J, somewhere. K and J go into I forget what the situation was, but there's a alien called a Balchinian, and they pull down his hood or whatever it is, and there's a set of testicles hanging from his chin, and the guy and he jumps up and he kicks him, and I, I that's. I will never not derive joy from that stupid joke. I will never not think that's funny. And it's so stupid and I know it, but people desire adversity and they think that it's like, it's there's a um, relative that I have who will not. And I used to be this guy. So I don't fault him because it's hard to get past this point when you're in this paradigm. But I have a relative who will not admit that Donald Trump was funny, or said anything funny. It's objectively bullshit to not think that. It's a and, even, and even if you hate yourself. him, he's funny. You can hate. You can think somebody is funny that you hate. Like it's not yeah. that difficult. There's a lot of and people. So, like, AOC people, is hilarious. People, people want this adversity, and so they're willing to forego pleasure or laughs or whatever 
to have this false ad- adversity. And I, I hate to break it to anyone who listens to this show, but when you're partaking in politics in any form, you are partaking, especially in America. Like I, I'm not an, I'm, I don't think that America is great for human thriving. I don't think that we're as free as we could be. I don't think that we're living. This is, I don't think this is the best it could be the best life. But I do think that right now we're, we're living in the Zenith of human flourishing. I think that technology, the way we live, the freedoms that we have is amazing. Give it a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, things, (laughs) things are going to get worse before they get better. Oh, but yeah, be careful what you ask for, I guess. (laughs) But when you are finding this adversity, when you're on Twitter talking about how you're oppressed in America, where you can't take a joke about every country but America being a shithole without, I mean, you can't take that joke and laugh at it. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's ridiculous to me. Yeah. Um, but you're looking for something to fight. And I don't fault you for wanting to fight something because the, the fight is a very human and in a sense, very animal thing to desire. So if you are in the political fight, I don't fault you for that. But I will tell you what you're doing is you're superseding the important. You're superseding Mm -hmm. your own life. You're superseding what you could be doing to make your life better. Mm -hmm. And instead, you're you're dealing with the global. You're dealing with the national. You're dealing with the state. That's sad. They're, they're, they're taking what you, that desire that you have to, to fight something and then you're being manipulated into fighting for what the people that are oppressing everyone want. So right. most of the people, they're like, uh, everybody's oppressed. We should do exactly what the corporations and the, the politicians want. I don't, that doesn't seem right. I don't know. Aren't they the ones oppressing people? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> well, and, and also, I, I'm not saying there isn't any imp- oppression at all, but what I'm saying also. is that when you are claiming that what Biden or what Trump did is oppression, you're missing the mark because the last four years, the last five years haven't, I mean, well, okay, minus 2020, that's been a, that's a, that's a fucked up situation, but outside of because most people aren't even fighting lockdowns they're not even fighting masks they're not fighting vaccines they're not fighting these things that i would say yes this is legitimate oppression they're fighting like some trumped up version of the culture war and you take i mean i'm this is to this is to me and this is something I'm learning. And this is something that I'm growing in is I need to deal with me. I need to deal with my family. I need to deal with my own prosperity. I need to deal with my own ability to circumvent, to subvert the oppressors. Anything beyond that at this point in time is vanity. I mean, do you, is there a disagreement there? Because I feel yeah. like so much of it's vanity. 
<laughs> What's that hubris again it's, that it's says we can cure everything? To me, it's gullibility. Gullibility is the right. Like, are you seriously telling me that Nancy Pelosi is the one that's going to lead people out of oppression or Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any of these people? Like, no, none of these people have any interest in bringing anybody out of oppression. Like, I don't know how you could possibly take what they say and be like, yeah, this lifelong politician or whatever is who's going to end depression? Like, are you kidding me? Like, then no, right. not at all. I don't get it anymore. I don't know. I give up. I give up on politics. I don't care. Well, and, and it's the, the, the deal is, especially within the last year, we've found out that there are people, even on the municipal and city town level, that can all but destroy your life. They can all but destroy your business. That, And so I'm not saying that there aren't people out there who have businesses or restaurants or whatever that have been adversely affected by a global cabal of people who want to destroy you in favor of big corporations. But if you feign to believe that someone as well-connected as Donald Trump or as well-connected as Joe Biden or as sinister as fucking Kamala Harris can save you or even someone smaller in some in the Green Party, the Libertarian Party, any of these third-party options can save you, you're wasting your time. And I'm not, I don't say that to be a down. To bring it back, it's the same thing with the psychiatrist. Yeah. Bring it back. Like, they're not going to save you. You got to save yourself. You got to save you your family members. If you want to be free, if you want to be prosperous, if you want to change your life, that's on you. If you're trusting someone else, you're trusting the wrong person. And some of you, like I'm not gonna lie, some of you, if you trust yourself, you're the wrong. You're trusting the wrong person. But I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying to be a dick here. Um, <laughs> but thinking that global or national solutions can fix your life is almost certainly a way to never improve your life. Well, it's not even their fault. They're just programmed to think that way. It's just fear, fear, fear. And then you eat up all the fear. And then what's the, what's the solutions? Tell me. And then they tell you the solutions. They're like, okay, I'm just going to do that solution. And then you block out everything else that contradicts all that. And it's just fear, fear, fear. Uh, bad solution, bad solution. But, you know, uh, nobody thinks for themselves anymore. Nobody does anything for themselves. Help your, help your community. Go out and do something yeah. to help your community instead of sitting and bitching about how your community is oppressed. Go out and help your community. Well, yeah, and we talk... We talk, and I say we in this part of our audience, we talk about decentralization so much. We talk about how important decentralization is, but we don't take it down to the necessary part, which is you controlling your own life. I mean, some people do. I'm not saying they don't, but there is something to be said about the technological advances of 3D printers of uh, cryptocurrency, of 
the internet as a whole, as alternative media, there is something to be said about starting on the right level. And so many people jump to the global or the national level before they start on the personal level. And all I'm saying, I don't care. There are many roads that lead to Rome. Some say all of them do, apparently. But I recommend that you start on your the, the road outside of your house rather than going to the interstate. I, I'm sorry, I'm on a soapbox. I apologize. <laughs> I agree. And get back to nature. Nature has always been healing for everyone. So if you're living in the middle of the city and you're feeling depressed all the time, maybe try somewhere else. Maybe uh, if you... If your kids are acting up and you're both working full-time jobs and they're in daycare and uh, public school, whatever, same thing, then uh, maybe move somewhere where it's cheaper and you don't both have to work and you can spend more time with it. You know what I mean? It's, you have to make changes in your life to get what you want. You can't just keep doing the same thing and expect changes to occur. And I, as for that, I will say that one of the things that I've heard a lot of millennials say is that it's impossible for a wife to stay home and take care of the kids. And I have made as little as 25 or 30,000 and as mm -hmm. much as 90,000. Mm -hmm. And I've and you have like 14 my, kids, right? I have five, but yeah, I've my Same wife thing. has never had to work no. because it's my job to make sure that she doesn't have to. And well, I, can't I well, we we used to do that. I used to do that too. I I made twenty five grand a year. We we managed. We find a way to make it work. Um, and when at first I was the one staying home, and then I went to work, and then we take turns. And right now we both kind of work part time, and we just just make enough to survive. Like that's what we need. We need to spend more time with our kids. Unless I don't need a fancy car. Or anything. And I and, and that's what I'm that's what I'm getting at is I don't care if it's the wife that works or if it's that the husband that works yeah. or if both work part time, but I, in my world, in the way I think, my job is to make sure that my kids have a parent at any moment of the day to call on, and to get the comfort they need, to get the teaching they need, to get whatever they need. And regardless of if it's part-time, part-time, full-time, no job, man or woman, we as a community, as not as a community, as a society, American society, have given away our old people. We've given away our young people, and that needs to stop. My wife comes first, but directly after her comes my kids. Of course. And the way that I protect and take care of and love and fight for my wife is to make sure that she's the one who takes care of my kids and not some person who gets paid to do it by the government. And let me just say, this is a, I don't want this to start a whole tangent, but it's become abundantly clear in recent years that people, not all of them, but Pete, a lot of people who are called or say they are called to work with children also double as predators of children. Yep. 
and I can't like, chance my children on that. Well, yeah, I, I'm not one of these. I mean, I'm known for not being one of these people that are like seeing pedophiles around every corner, but it definitely is like, why would you not work in that industry if you were kids? Um, right. When I was in daycare as a kid, I was those those like hooks that come out of the wall, like coat hooks, where there's like a big one on yeah. top and a little curved one. I had a in daycare, the guy grabbed me by the shoulders and slamming against the wall into one. And it bruises all on my back. Um, yeah, and, and you know? I'm not saying that all people who are called to take care of children are bad, no. No, but I will say people. that there are right. bad if people. If you have to, if there's a single parent household and there's no other way, whatever, of course, you got to have somebody watch it. But it's also, we lost the multi-generational household, which as much as I complained about my mother-in-law or whatever, yeah. she, um, you know, if we both have to do things and there's a little overlap, you know, we have somebody here to watch, you know? And, and that's good. That's one thing we lost, yeah. Well, and and that's that's a point that I've brought up previously with Jessica on our earlier shows, is the fact that, like I've said, we've given up our young people, we've given up our old people, and so Hillary Clinton, of all people, said that it takes a village to raise a child, and she's yeah. not wrong <laughs> in the very pure fact of what she said, but her underpinnings were government but the vast majority of human history have been tribes and families tribe is a, a special word for family and so it does take a tribe to raise a child and i think we, we've lost that but i do think we've also hit two hours so yeah i'm sorry i've kept you this long Chris. i've had the piece sure. it's like 15 minutes in so <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that yeah. for our listeners' sake and for your bladder's sake, we should wrap it up. So I have two questions. Um, actually, I have three. I'll give you three. Um, one being the one that I like to put Jessica on the spot, which is she is a, a diviner of pizza. So if you were to order a pizza right now, what pizza mm -hmm. would you order? And Jessica will tell you what that says about you as a person. Uh, pepperoni, extra cheese, peppers and onions. That is literally the perfect pizza. Thank so you. I don't Thank often you. say this. Yeah. But you have actually landed on the exact perfect <laughs> ingredients right. for pizza. What else do you need? Yeah. What so, else do you need? Yeah. You're basically so, like a superhuman. Good job. There we go. I, I already did that, but, but thank you. Um, so let me let me. The next question is the staple of the show, um, which we've said it differently over time. But what is something right now? Could be personal. Could be global. Could be city, state, whatever level. What is something right now that gives you hope? and motivation for the future. What's the silver uh, lining? The amount of people getting into homesteading and creating their own food and homeschooling their kids and things like that. There's just, a, it's a whole movement. It's not right or left. Like most of the people that we hang out with that are homeschooling, homesteader type people are all like left and right and we all get along. And it's because we all recognize that it's not, it's not about Pelosi or Trump or whatever. It's like about being able to provide for your family, whether it's your education or your 
uh, child rearing or growing your own food, or having chickens. Or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? yep. Awesome. Well, let, I, I do like to, like I said, this show, a lot of it's about hope. It's about the idea that we can move on, we can rebuild, we can make something good out of what, because there are a lot of depressed people around here. But my final and most important question for you, and I can ask you this because you're in a group chat with me, is what is your favorite thing about me? Hmm. Probably your majestic mane. I'm saying. Oh, oh you said mane. You didn't say beard. No, mane. Like the whole thing, because it's all really a mane. It's like a lion thing at this point. You should cut it so you're so nobody can, you should cut it so it doesn't your beard. So it just oh, all like please. blends together. Maybe braid yeah. it together with your beard. Like tease it out so that it yeah, like goes come down big. and then braid them both oh. together. Yeah. No. Yes. That's probably I fully endorse this. <laughs> Though well, you will lose your powers if you cut your hair. This is well documented. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to disappoint you here. I'm not going to cut my hair. Maybe I'll talk my wife into braiding it into my beard. Yeah, we'll see what happens there. But I wanna say, Chris, you're a joy on Twitter. You I was put into that group chat. Um, by Cotton kind of randomly after I talked to him about coming on the show and it never happened. Um, but I, it's tr- like, I don't know if any of the other guys in the group chat besides Pilar and Whip are listening to this, but you guys are, I was kicked off of Facebook. The group that I created, the little family that I created on Facebook was kicked off three days before the election. And um, I was in that, I think, slightly before that. But you guys are the best part of Twitter for me because in that group we get to innovate, we get to yeah. talk. I wouldn't about have come ideas. back to Twitter. I wouldn't have come back to Twitter if it wasn't for that group chat. That group chat and my friends uh, Seth and Spencer and Mike, like that, I hang out with in another group chat on Keybase. They all have gotten banned on Twitter or whatever. But um, <laughs> you know, if it wasn't for those group chats, like I probably wouldn't use my phone that much. but i i want to say you know thank you for the glasses thank you for um coming on the show and for talking to us i'm sure you did we didn't hit as much as you may have wanted to um but i enjoyed talking to you and i hope people enjoyed listening to us um with that all i have to say for you i think unless you have something else you want to say is if people want to find you you're on twitter at chris amadon yeah, don't, don't he he used to have thousands <laughs> really of followers. Well, I'm gonna. I couldn't care less. <laughs> no, oh, I don't care. It Twitter's it? a shithole. Leave Twitter. Just leave Twitter instead. Instead of put that, just put leave oh. Twitter forever. You're <laughs> the mushroom <laughs> guy. I yeah. know you. Well, the mushroom yeah, and the DMT guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so beyond this whole that, time, I did not connect you to that. Oh, Twitter you didn't account. even know it was the same guy? No, no. <laughs> so it's funny. You on there. I was mutuals with you on there. Yeah. So what's funny though with me again? is how often I book book something and Jessica's like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. But then she gets into the show. It's and obvious she's like, she oh, didn't even is... listen to you. She's like, whatever. <laughs> this is a person that she's I like, know. I'll talk to anybody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I will though. Like uh, I'm really friendly. You should see me in a line at a grocery store. It's oh yeah, a mess. <laughs> I'm the person the who talks to people in line. Everybody. Hates I, me. I actually went to Publix the other day, 
and I have like this whole text thing I could post it on Twitter. And I was like, everybody's talking to me all of a sudden, like just this one day. I don't know if I like looked handsome or something, but like all these old women were talking to me and like employees were, and like, everybody was getting in this conversation. I was like, what is going on? And it was it's so weird for me because I never talked to anybody. I don't know. So. Uh, <laughs> I think it's because you're handsome. I think that's what it is. Uh, but with that, I have my list of nonsense to mention where to follow us and all that. So I'm going to go through that and okay. I'll do the, the outro. Um, so upcoming you episodes, you're doing this? you yes. can go pee, you can log out, whatever you want to do. Oh, I'm happy awesome. with. Um, so coming up next week, we have go Harley, drain his mushroom. Harley, AKA at rebel scumahan on Twitter, who, um, she she has a project called Cryptid Bartender, which I think is a great situation for us. But next week, we're going to be talking cryptids with Harley. Following that, we're talking to a man named uh, Chris Baker. His organization is called Inc. 180. His whole deal is he is a tattoo artist. He still does that. But on the side, his ministry as a Christian is um, he covers up tattoos of sex trafficking victims who have like the barcodes and other essentially brands of people who sold them um and that's really cool he also covers up gang tattoos and stuff like that that dog is barking at you by the way <laughs> uh after that we have our good friend kim from lesbertarian come on to talk about stoicism in a, so uh, a more philosophical conversation and then finding out after that rather uh, we have Nick Ashley from The Individualist. You may know him from Twitter as wearing a Burger King crown on the Fakertarians podcast. I have no fucking idea what we'll talk to him about, but I don't want it to be about the boring stuff. So I'll, Thomas, I'll figure that probably. out before we get there. <laughs> but beyond that, uh, follow us on Rockfin. That's where if we do early episodes like we did last week with um, Kate from Burials and Beyond or the week before that with Allie, if you want to see earlier released content, live content, rockfin.com slash the mad ones. We are on Patreon. If you want to help us keep the lights on, keep the shirts flowing out to our guests, which have been put on pause. I'm so sorry. I lost my job. Uh, but uh, beyond that, so patreon.com slash the mad ones on Twitter. I am at Cam Harless, which I am now public again. Please don't get make it so that I lose this possible job. I, I would be so heartbroken. Um, if you want to follow Jessica, that's at soup canarchist on Twitter. Um, we have t-shirts, we have hoodies, we have tank tops. We have a shirt with a chihuahua with large balls on it. Um, you can't find it at this link, but it's there. I I'm can not give responsible you the for any of these t-shirts, by the way. <laughs> if, <laughs> if that's something you want, uh, but you can go to, we, uh, we are the mad ones.com slash store. Um, we are the mad ones.com has all of the audio. Wait, that's not true. That. The, the hookers hookers built this country is, is mine. It's true. And it's, it's on the, it's on that, that link. Um, if you want to listen to it, any podcatcher, we are the mad ones.com. If you're not watching this right now on YouTube, it's youtube.com slash the mad ones. We're also on odyssey, which just search for it. There's not a good link for that. I'm, I, I can't fix that. I tried. We come um, right up you, when you search the mad ones. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, uh, if you want to listen to any of the other shows that I edit, if you want to listen to other good 
shows in general typically centered around the concept of human liberty, mlganetwork.com. That's all I've got for you. Um, Chris, you have anything you want to say to the, the poor audience that's lived through this entire ordeal? Nope. Awesome. <laughs> and so with that, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Thanks for and me. as always, don't get arrested for something <laughs> stupid. Thank you.